We learned praying prayers when we were growing up as children because we were little tiny-sized prayers. We, there's nothing wrong with the prayers we learned as we were growing up, but uh, they feel pretty puny next to the problems and situations we face as adults. When we were kids, it seems like the purpose of prayer was, uh, there, were, well, there were multiple purposes. One was to please whoever it was who was going to ask you the next time they saw you if you've been saying your prayers. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, whoever. Uh, sometimes it felt like we were just going to give God our, our Christmas or birthday wish list. Uh, and most of the time, prayer seemed to be a private thing. You knelt by your bed. I had to kneel by my bed. Uh, even now, well, kneeling by my bed is, is dangerous. Not for the reason you think. When I kneel by my bed, I go to sleep. <laughs> then it's painful when it's time to get up. When, when you become an adult, however, we realize that there's got to be more to prayer than and giving God a wish list, or trying to please somebody else, or, or just spending time alone. Uh, there has to be more to it. There's, there's got to be a bigger purpose and a better reason for praying. If not, then we're going to just stop praying like we stopped a lot of other things we did when we were kids. Well, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe some of us have stopped praying. Their backs are against the wall. Polls at universities like Harvard and Princeton 
forward, both those institutions came up with three students who said they were Christians. Total between the two universities. Bibles burned publicly. Now, if you haven't guessed already, that's not what's happening now. Now, some of you might be thinking our country's headed there. But I want you to know that this was the time, this is the description of our country immediately after the Revolutionary War. Immediately following the Revolutionary War, churches were dying right and left. It was the majority opinion that Christianity was dead and dying, and everybody was happy about it. to change the course of history. Uh, we're definitely more than 30 years past the end of the Revolutionary War. Right? Okay. And, and we're still here. Christianity has not been forgotten. Uh, so what did God do? What did, what did he, uh, what did his family do to change the situation? What, what happened in this country People were all excited. Jesus had walked the streets of Jerusalem. He spoke in the temple courts. He had healed people. Blind people could see. Deaf people could hear. Those who had never been able to speak were able to speak. Dead people had been raised back to life. Uh, but the authorities, the religious and political authorities, had gathered together and, and uh, conspired against him and, and killed him. third day, after his death, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered the grave and on and all the forces of evil. And he spent time with his disciples. It was wonderful. And then they were just standing out there in the countryside and he literally floated away. thing he said to them was uh, wait in Jerusalem. God's going to help him keep his promise. In a few days, God's going to keep his promise. Day passed. Two days passed. Three days passed. Four days passed. Five days 
days past. Six days past. Oh, seven. That's the perfect number. This must be the day. But you know what? A few or seven. That'd be perfect. Forty degrees? No. Eight days past. Nine days past. Tenth day. They had Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly it sounded like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard, each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men from Galilee? But how is it that each of us hears them in his own language, his own native language? Parsi and Jews, and you're like, there's a whole long list of places. Some of them easier to pronounce than others. Get on down here. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? However, some made fun of them, saying, They've had too much wine. I'm going to pause for a moment. I have never understood that statement. I've met drunk people. Sometimes it is, it is hard to understand what they're saying. But it's not because they suddenly started speaking Swahili. Isn't that right? So this has got to be the stupidest thing that's ever been said. This guy over here speaking Latin, that guy speaking Greek, that guy speaking Egyptian, that guy speaking. They must be drunk. Then Peter stands up. He stood up with the eleven, the rest of the disciples, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's not it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They haven't had time to get drunk. Spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And down to verse 42, or verse 41, after Peter finishes his sermon. Verse 41 says, Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, I mean, what happened here? What 
what was going on before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came, before the birth of the church. The answer is found in Acts 1, 14. Immediately after the disciples came back to see Jesus, go to heaven. They went back to Jerusalem. It tells us in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his, with his brothers. Pastor Jim Cimbala, author, pastor, points out the church was born in a prayer meeting. The church was born in a prayer meeting. The answer to our question, what did God do? What were the followers, Jesus' followers doing to prepare the way for Pentecost? The answer was simple. They were together constantly in prayer. Praying people pray together. People pray together. A praying pray, uh, Pentecost did not end of praying together. Uh, at the end, at the end of uh, Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, it tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were praying together. In Acts chapter four, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, Peter and John had been arrested. They had healed a man who had been lame from birth. Well, they didn't heal him. God healed him, him through them. People said, what on earth? How did this happen? So they said, well, this guy named Jesus. Started talking to them about Jesus. And they were arrested for telling people about Jesus. And they were kept overnight and told that if they ever spoke about Jesus again, they'd be in really, really big trouble. Don't ever talk about him again. So they went back. It says in verse 23 of chapter 4, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and started the petition drive. No, that's not good. They went back to their own people and called the lawyer to sue. No. They went back to their own people and called all the radio stations to complain about no. Are you getting it? Here, let me tell you what it says. They, they came back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they all heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. What happened 
late 1700s with our nation, the same thing that happened for Pentecost. A pastor named Jonathan Edwards received a letter from a Scottish pastor encouraging him to call people to prayer. Things weren't any better in Great Britain at the same time. We're calling people to prayer. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a book. I love the title. You don't need to read the book because he tells you everything that's in the book in the title. Yes, it's that long. Here's the title. A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of All God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom. That's the title. I'll read it again because when you go home say, the pastor read us a book. But that's, that's everything he, should, he wants to say. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. You don't need to read the book. You already know what the guy said. He says we need to pray. That's, that's what it means. In other words, here's the short version, praying people pray together. Praying people pray with people. In 1794, conditions were at their worst. A Baptist pastor named Isaac Bacchus sent out a plea for prayer to pastors of every denomination in the United States. They agreed to set apart the first Monday of every month to pray for our nation. As a result, the original colonies experienced the movement of God's Spirit that brought many to follow Christ. Why? Because praying people Scottish Irish Presbyterian minister called James McGreevy went to Kentucky. His, he was not known for being a great preacher. He was known for being so ugly. This is true. This is a historical fact. He was so ugly, people went to hear what he had to say. The theory was that anybody that ugly who wanted to get up and preach must have something to say. Because otherwise, they should be hiding in a closet. That's his mate. I just want to thank the Lord for that about my gift. I'm, no, I'm not the best looking guy in the room, maybe either. But I'm not the, I'm not the guy that gets a crowd because I'm ugly. <clears throat> Okay, he goes to Kentucky. He added to the money. When he went to Kentucky, he added the he had the money prayer meetings started. The same money prayer meetings that were going on in the original colonies, he had them going on in his church. But he enlisted his church members and asked them to pray for him on Saturday evening at sunrise, and again on Sunday morning at sunrise. And soon thousands began to attend worship services across Kentucky. Because they had churches, very few pastors, little places of prayer and meeting, and occasionally a pastor would be there. Back in the hills, he'd make it, and they, they could have celebrations. At one place, twelve thousand 
started praying with people, asking God to work. Conditions declined toward the end of the 1800s. People started making hand, money over hand over fist, and, and, and so they got comfortable. They began to turn their backs on God. In other words, praying people stopped praying together, but they were comfortable. But a layman named Jeremiah Lampier started a prayer meeting in the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. He advertised the prayer meeting for businessmen. First week, six people showed up. Twenty minutes late. I, I don't start counting people until ten after the service starts. So, I can imagine what it would be like twenty minutes later. You know, you're sitting there. Maybe this wasn't God's idea. God sees it Six people the first week. The next time they had a meeting, the following week there were 14. And then 23. And then they decided to meet every day for prayer. These were business people in New York City. Every day for prayer. They filled the Dutch Reformed Church. They filled the Methodist Church down the street. Then they filled every public building in downtown New York. The manager sent a reporter out to try to, to count how many businessmen had gathered for prayer. He made it to 12 prayer meetings and it counted 6,100 people. But he had not made it to all of them. People began to receive Jesus with their hands raised. At a rate of 10,000 a week in the city of New York, they had a population of a million. Outside of their district, just 840 in 10,000 people a day. Can you imagine what would happen to a place like New York City? The movement spread through, uh, this prayer movement spread throughout New England. Church bells uh, would call people to prayer all across New England. People would come to prayer at 8 in the morning, 12 at noon, and 6 in the evening. Breakfast time, their lunch time, and supper time. And they did eat. Oh, yeah. They prayed at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, 6 in the evening. The Baptists had so many people. The Baptists had so many people they needed to baptize, they couldn't get them into their churches. 
So they went down to the river and cut ice. They square the ice and baptized him in the pool. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Bob correctly, when you're doing that baptism in the bay now, about three quarters of a mile out, there's still 18 inches. Is that what I heard you say this morning? Had to cut through 18 inches of ice to baptize people in the bay this morning. See, I was just about to say you really know somebody's committed to following Jesus if they want to be baptized. And then we trust the vice can get there. Then one Episcopal church in Chicago started this time period around 1800 with 124 members, and by 1860 they had 1,400 members. That was typical of all churches, Baptist movements, all churches. In one year, more than one million people started following Jesus. Perspective. The population of the United States at that time was around between three and four million. The entire nation, three and four million people. So anywhere from a third to a fourth of the people of a fourth to a third of the people came to Christ. By this time next year, one fourth of the population had become committed followers of Jesus. Two or three times at least, we have a full church. Every church in town will be thrilled over and over. The revival crossed the oceans to Scotland, to Wales, to England, to South Africa, to India. In fact, it went anywhere there was a movement of prayer. In other words, when people, praying people, prayed with people, God moved. We tended to think of prayer as a private thing, a personal thing. But praying with others is a vital component to a vibrant spiritual life. Not only in our own spiritual life, but in the life of our church, in our community, in our nation. So the first thing I would suggest to you this morning is to just take a moment to look around. Take a moment to look around at our country. Look around at our community. Someone, find a group of people to pray with you. And they don't have to be, in fact, I just want to say this very carefully. It might even be better if they're not part of the church. 
remind you of the title of that book? Who reminds you of the title of that book? A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people. An extraordinary prayer. All the Wesleyans are praying. That's wonderful. I'll be excited. But when the Wesleyans and the Baptists start praying, and the Methodists and the Episcopalians and the Wesleyans and the Baptists, thought in their, their head, I was always taught that they, they were the competition. Let me tell you the truth. Yes, that does imply that what you just thought was an error. Other denominations are not our competition. Christians who meet in other church buildings are not our competition. Somebody pray with. Now I know the first thing some some of us are thinking is, well, I'm not comfortable praying with other people. what it means to be an adult Christian. Adult Christians are praying people who pray together. And we need to learn to pray together. We can get three people to come together and pray silently. And all of you say, Amen. That's better than never getting together to pray. So like the song says, come on people now, everybody sing it. My longer brother, everybody, everybody get together. Try to love one another like that. Praying people pray together. The story of J. Edwin Orr, who supplied many of the facts that I was sharing with you this afternoon and here this morning about history. We write that God expects us to pray, but we have, can't forget Jonathan Edwards' statement of the importance 
of the visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer. When you find people who are willing to get up early in the morning to pray, or are willing to spend half the night in prayer, give up their lunch time and go to pray at a noonday prayer meeting. That's extraordinary prayer. Praying people pray together. Even if so the question is, will you start praying with others?